Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, just a little housekeeping to do today. I'm recording this intro a few days after the atrocity in Christchurch, New Zealand, where 49 worshippers in two mosques were murdered. I suspect the death toll will rise because I think something like 40 people are still in critical condition. So no doubt this story is going to get worse, but it is certainly bad enough already. Now, I wasn't going to say much about it because everything I have to say really should go without saying. Obviously, this was a horrific act of terrorism. And the fact that it was directed at Muslims by an avowed fascist and white supremacist And the whole thing appears to have been both inspired by and crafted for social media. This was essentially an atrocity designed as an internet meme. All of this is just a nightmare. And it certainly suggests that the problem of white nationalism is in fact a global one. And this massacre is certainly one ominous sign that it's getting worse. And of course, white nationalism is an ideology that I utterly oppose. One would certainly hope that that last part could go without saying. The problem, however, is that in the aftermath of events like this, we have pornographers of grief and grievance who come out of the woodwork to smear anyone who has ever said a critical word about Islam. And they're intent upon silencing people people like my friend Majid Nawaz, the Muslim reformer, or ex-Muslims and real feminists like Ayan Hirsi Ali, or Yasmin Muhammad, or Sarah Hader. And they're also intent upon silencing people like me, and Bill Maher, and any other prominent non-Muslim who has ever criticized the faith. And in some cases, I'm convinced these people are actually hoping to get us all killed. Right? That's how sinister some of these efforts are. At a minimum, they're hoping to make our security concerns so onerous and so rational, frankly, that we just stop talking about these issues. And they're certainly hoping to get people fired and deplatformed wherever they can. Now, three of the most calculating of these smear artists are employed by the billionaire Pierre Omidyar over at his website, The Intercept. And here I'm talking about Mehdi Hassan, Murtaza Hussein, and Glenn Greenwald. In the last few days, Hassan and Hussein have taken to Twitter and have been circulating misleading half-quotes from me, stating that I'm responsible for the atrocity in Christchurch. To be clear, they're doing this knowing what my politics actually are. They know I oppose white nationalism and Christian identitarianism and Trumpism and fascism as much as anyone. I'm not sure whether Greenwald has singled me out by name yet, but on Twitter you can see him defending the deranged students who accosted a pregnant Chelsea Clinton and berated her for her supposed responsibility in inspiring the Christchurch massacre. The effect of all this is to make violence in our world much more confusing 
and more dangerous to talk about. It is much harder to oppose real white supremacy and racism if you pretend to find these things everywhere, even where they manifestly do not exist. And then when you fundraise on the back of these pretensions, as many corrupt organizations are now doing, it only compounds the problem. It's very difficult not to see reasons for cynicism everywhere. I wasn't going to be baited into responding to any of this until I was successfully baited this morning by an opinion piece published in the New York Times, which names me and Jordan Peterson as the true sources of the Islamophobia that got 49 people killed in New Zealand. This article was written by Omar Aziz, and if you've ever listened to the episode of this podcast, ironically titled, The Best Podcast Ever, you'll know that Omar and I have a history. Omar once wrote a spectacularly dishonest criticism of my collaboration with Majid Nawaz, and being fairly new to podcasting at the time and more idealistic about the power of conversation than I now am, I invited him on the show to talk about it. And that episode was a disaster. And so I decided it was better not to release it. And I told Omer at the time I might not release it, which he seemed to accept. But I just thought the conversation was so toxic. It was a perfect distillation of the principle which was so beautifully summarized by Brett Weinstein, that bad faith changes everything. That should be the mantra of our time. And Omer was arguing in bad faith. And if you listen to that podcast, especially to the last hour, you will notice that. But Omer being some kind of masochist, or actually under the delusion that he came off well in that podcast, decided to essentially blackmail me into releasing it. And he did this by publishing an article in Salon filled with lies about what had actually happened in the unreleased audio. So, for instance, he claimed that he destroyed me in debate and that he had exposed my ignorance of Islam as well as my racism and bloodlust. But, of course, none of these things happened. There was not a scintilla of truth to what he wrote in Salon. But I had to release the podcast to prove that. So I did. I have no idea why he wanted that audio released. Anyway, the New York Times has a short memory, or they have no idea who Omer is, or they simply don't care that they're publishing someone who has a history of lying extravagantly, even to his own disadvantage. So, they published his take on the Christchurch massacre today, and he names me and Jordan Peterson as the sources of the anti-Muslim hatred that got 49 people killed. So let me just point out a few things here. First, I don't think there's anyone who is actually familiar with my work, who's listened to my conversations on the topic of Islam, with Majid Nawaz or Dia Khan or Sarah Hader or Ayan Hirsi Ali, or even with Douglas Murray, who's also getting smeared now, who thinks that I have ever been motivated by racism or bigotry in my criticism of Islam. The problem, of course, is that these types of smears aren't directed at people who are familiar with my work. They're designed to mislead people. And this is dangerous. On social media, people are now circulating lists of people who need to be, quote, eliminated. And these kinds of smears 
are calculated to inspire that. And it's simply a fact that the term Islamophobia was designed to confuse people and to make any criticism of the ideology of Islam seem indistinguishable from bigotry against Muslims as people. And the left has been utterly taken in by this. The New York Times has been utterly taken in by this. And the effect of all this is to make it much harder to oppose extremism, whether it comes from fascists on the right or from fascists within Islam. Now, our sanity as human beings depends on our being able to make these sorts of distinctions in an environment that allows for measured conversation. And the places where one can do that are disappearing. The fact that the New York Times published this allegation against me and Peterson is completely insane. As I said, I didn't want to get into any of this, and I certainly didn't want to strike a defensive note here. The reality is, is that 49 people were killed horribly, and many others were no doubt horribly injured, and many more may yet succumb to those injuries. But it seems like I needed to say something in response to what's been coming at me on social media and now in the real media, because it exemplifies just how unequipped we are socially at this moment to speak honestly about these problems. And now I believe the better part of wisdom is moving on. And as it turns out, the topic of today's podcast is the end of the world. So this is perhaps an appropriate preamble. Today I am speaking with Nick Bostrom. Nick is someone I've been hoping to get on the podcast for quite some time. He is a Swedish-born philosopher with a background in theoretical physics and computational neuroscience and logic and AI and many other interesting intersecting topics. But officially, he's a professor of philosophy at Oxford University, where he leads the Future of Humanity Institute. And this organization is a research center which is focused largely on the problem of existential risk. And today we get deep into his views on existential risk by focusing on three of his papers, which I'll describe in our conversation. We talk about what he calls the vulnerable world hypothesis, which gets us into many interesting tangents uh, with respect to the, the history of nuclear deterrence and the possible need for what he calls turnkey totalitarianism. We talk about whether we're living in a computer simulation. He's the father of the now famous simulation argument. We talk about the doomsday argument, which is not his, but it's one of these philosophical thought experiments that have convinced many people that we might be living close to the end of human history. We talk about the implications of there being extraterrestrial life out there in the galaxy, and uh, many other topics, but all of it is focused on the question of whether humanity is close to the end of its career here or near the very beginning. And um, I hope you'll agree that the difference between those two scenarios is one of the more significant ones we can find. Anyway, I really enjoyed talking to Nick. I find his work fascinating and very consequential, and that's a good combination. 
And now I bring you Nick Bostrom. I am here with Nick Bostrom. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me. So uh, you are fast becoming, uh, or not too fast, it's been been years now that I've been aware of your work, but you are becoming one of the most provocative philosophers I can think of. And really, it's, it's, just, it's wonderful to read your work. And I, I want to introduce you, but perhaps to begin with, I just, how do you view your work and what, what you focus on at this point? How do you summarize your interests as a philosopher? Well, that's always been a challenge for me. Broadly speaking, I'm interested in big picture questions for humanity and figuring out which direction is up and which is down. That is, out of all the things you can be pushing on or pulling on in the world, which ones would actually tend to make things better in expectation. Yeah, and then various kind of sub-questions that come out from that ultimate quest to figure out which direction we should be heading in. Yeah, so when I, when I think about your work, I see a concern that unifies much of it, certainly, with existential risk. And I don't know if this is a phrase that you have popularized or if it's, it's just derivative of your work, but how do you think of existential risk and, and why is it so hard for most people to care about? And it's, it's amazing to me that this is such an esoteric concern and, and you really have brought it into prominence. Yeah, it, 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 I introduced the concept in a paper I wrote back in the early 2000s the concept being that of a risk either to the survival of Earth-originating intelligent life or a risk that could permanently and drastically reduce our potential for desirable future developments. So, in other words, something that could permanently destroy the future. I mean, even that phrase, I mean, so you, you really have a, a talent for coming up with phrases that are arresting, and, and, and you know, it's such a simple one, it permanently destroy the future. You know, there, there are probably more people working in my local McDonald's than are thinking about the prospect of permanently destroying the future. How long have you been focused on, on this particular problem? And again, why is it, there's something bewildering about trying to export this concern to the rest of culture, even to very, very smart people who claim to be worried about things like climate change, why is existential risk still such an esoteric concern? Well, it's become less so over the last few years. There is now actually a community of folk around the rationalist community, the EA community, you know, various academic centers. and EA is uh, effective uh, altruism. Yeah, yeah and, and about, yeah. About not, not just these, but, but kind of radiating out from these uh, number of individuals that, that are quite interested in this. So I think the comparison to the McDonald's restaurant would no longer be true now. Maybe right. it was true. Several McDonald's. Years ago. Why it is? Well, I guess you could ask that or you could ask why it's no longer the case. I mean, I don't know that the default should be, if we're looking at academia, that questions receive attention in proportion to their importance. I, I think that's just kind of a poor model of what to expect from academic right. research. So one can ask why it's changed. I mean, on one level, you're asking people to care about the unborn if the time horizon is beyond their lives and the lives of their children, which, which it seems on its face probably harder than caring about distant strangers uh, who are currently alive. And, and we know we're already pretty bad at that. Is, is that a major variable here? Sure. Uh, it's an extreme case of a public good, right? So generally, 
in a simple model of the market economy, public goods tend to be undersupplied because the creator of them captures only a small fraction of the benefits. The global public goods are normally seen as the extreme of this. If, if all of humanity benefits from some activity or, or is harmed by some activity, as in maybe the case of global warming or something like that, then the incentives facing the individual producer are just very dissociated from their overall consequences. But with existential risks, it's even more extreme, actually, because it's a transgenerational good in the sense that all future generations are also impacted by our decisions concerning what we do about existential risks. And, and they are obviously not in a position in any direct way to influence our decisions. They can't reward us if we do things that are good for them. So right. if, if one thinks of, of, of human beings as selfish, one would expect the good of existential risk reduction to be undersupplied. Like you could imagine if somehow people could go back in time that future generations would be willing to like spend huge amounts of money to compensate uh, us for our efforts to reduce X risk. But since you can't, uh, that, that transaction is, is not possible, then uh, there is this undersupply. So that, 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 that could be one way of, of uh, like explaining why there's relatively little. And, and there was something about what you said about it, it's harder to care. Like it, it's a little strange some, that, that caring should be something that requires effort. If, if one does care about it, it doesn't seem like it should be a straining thing to do. And if one doesn't care, then it's not clear why one should be, what, 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 what motive one would have for trying to strain to, to start caring. It's a framing problem in many cases, so that there's a certain set of facts, let's say the reality of human suffering in some distant country that you have never visited, you have no connections there, this information can just be transmitted to you about the reality of the suffering. And it transmitted one way, you find that you don't care, and transmitted another way, the reality of it and the, and the, and the analogy to your own life or the lives of your children can be made more salient. And so we know that we know, you know, through the work of someone like Paul Slovic, we know there are moral illusions here where people can be shown to care more about the fate of one little girl who's delivered to them in the form of a personalized story. And they'll care less about the fate of that same little girl plus her brother. And they'll care less still if you tell them about the little girl, her brother, and the 500,000 other children who are also suffering from a famine. And you just get this diminishment of altruistic impulse and the amount of money they're willing to give to charity and all the rest. And it's, it goes in the wrong direction. As you scale the problem, people care less. So we know we have some moral bugs in our, in our psychology. Yeah. So the original paper about existential risk made the point that from a certain type of ethical theory, it looks like existential risk reduction is a very important goal. If you have a broadly aggregative consequentialist philosophy, say if you're a utilitarian, mm. and if you work the numbers out, the number of possible future generations, the number of individuals in each of those that could live very happy lives, then you multiply that together. And then it looks like even a very small chance in the probability that we will eventually achieve this would have a very high expected value. In fact, a higher expected value than uh, any other impacts that we might have in more direct ways on the world here and now. So that reducing existential risk by, you know, one thousandth of one percentage point would be from this utilitarian perspective, uh, worth more than eliminating world hunger or curing cancer. Now, that, of course, 
uh, says nothing about the question of whether this kind of utilitarian perspective is correct or is agreeable to us. But it just notes that that does seem to be an implication. I'm definitely a consequentialist of a certain kind. So, you know, I, I, we don't need to argue that point. But one thing that's interesting here, and this may be playing into it, is that there's a, there seems to be a clear asymmetry between how we value suffering and its mitigation and how we value the mere preemption of well-being or flourishing or positive states. So that I mean, suffering is is worse than pleasure or happiness is good. You know, I think if, if you told most people, here are two scenarios for the, how you can spend the rest of your day. You can spend it as you were planning to, living within the normal bounds of human experience, or I can give you one hour of the worst possible misery, followed by another hour of the deepest possible happiness. Would you like to sample the, the two extremes on the phenomenological continuum? I think most people would balk at this because we think we have a sense that that suffering is on, on some level, you know, in the limit is worse than any pleasure or happiness could be. And so we we look at the prospect of, let's say, you know, curing cancer and mitigating the suffering from that as being more important ethically than simply not allowing the door to close on future states of creativity and insight and beauty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one might want to decompose different ways in which that intuition could be produced. So one might just be that for us humans, as we are currently constituted, it's a lot easier to to create pain than, pain than to create a corresponding degree of pleasure. We, we might just evolutionarily be such that we have a kind of deeper bottom than we have a height. Mm. Uh, it, it, is, it might be possible, if you think about it in biological term, in a short period of time to in, introduce more damage to damage reproductive fitness more than you could possibly gain yeah. within the same amount of time. So if we are thinking about these vast futures, you want to probably factor that out in that you could re-engineer, say, human hedonic systems or the hedonic systems of whatever inhabitants would exist in this future so that they would have a much larger capacity for upside. Right, And it's not obvious that there would be an asymmetry there. Now, you might nevertheless think that even in some sense equal amounts of pleasure and pain, and it's a little unclear exactly what, what the metric is here, that there would nevertheless be some more basically ethical reason why one should place a higher priority on removing the negative. A lot of people have intuitions about equality, say in economic context, where helping the, the worst off is more important than, than further promoting the welfare of the best off. Maybe, maybe that's the source of, of some of those intuitions. I, actually, there's one other variable here, I think, which is that there is no victim or you know, beneficiary of the consequence of closing the door to the future. So if, if you ask someone, well, what would be wrong with the prospect of everyone dying painlessly in their sleep tonight, and there are no future generations, there's no one to be bereaved by that outcome. There's no one suffering the pain of the loss or the pain of, of the deaths even. So people are kind of at a loss for the place where the, the moral injury would land. Yeah, so I mean, that, that, that is a distinction within utilitarian frameworks between total utilitarians who think you basically count up all the good and subtract all the bad. 
and then other views that try to take a more uh, so-called person-affecting perspective, where what matters is what kind of happens to people, but coming into existence is not necessarily a benefit. And now I would say some kinds of existential catastrophe would have a, a, a continuing population of people who would be experiencing the bad. If you imagine, say, the world getting locked into some totalitarian, like really dystopian totalitarian regime, that, that you know, maybe there would be people living for a very long time, but just having much less good lives than could have existed. So right. in some scenarios of existential catastrophe, that uh, there would still be inhabitants there. Yeah, no, it can, it, it, I think it's pretty clear that destroying the future could be pretty unpleasant for people who are along for the ride. Now, I'd like uh, just to harken back a, a few minutes ago, like on the general um, premise here. So I don't see it so much as a premise, this utilitarian view. I mean, in fact, I wouldn't really describe myself as a utilitarian. It's more just pointing out the consequence. There are various mm. views about how we should reason about ethics. And there might be other things we care about as well, aside from ethics. And rather than directly trying to answer what do we have most reason to do all things considered, you might break it down and say, well, given this particular ethical theory, what do we have most reason to do, given this other value or this other goal we might have? And then, then at the end of the day, you might want to add all of that up again. But insofar as we are trying to uh, reason about our ethical obligations, I, I, I have kind of a normative uncertainty over different moral frameworks. And mm. so the way I would try to go about making decisions from a moral point of view would be to think I have this moral parliament model. It's a kind of metaphor, but where you try to factor in the viewpoints of a number of different ethical theories kind of in proportion to the degree to which you assign them probability. It's kind of interesting. When I'm out and about in, in the world, uh, I usually have to make the case for utilitarianism, or at least you should consider this perspective. Like people are scope insensitive. Uh, you should look at the numbers. If this thing has millions of people and this one only has hundreds of people being affected, clearly that. Uh, and, yet, and yet when I'm, I'm back here at the headquarters, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, I, I usually am the one who has to kind of advocate against the utilitarian perspective because so many of my friends are so deeply dyed in the wool uh, utilitarians. Yeah. Uh, and so, so narrowly focused on x-risk mitigation that I feel that I'm always the, uh, the odd one out. Well, you know, I would love to get into a conversation with you about meta-ethics some other time because, I, you know, I, I think your views about the limits of consequentialism would be fascinating to explore. But I have so much I want to talk to you about with respect to x-risk and a few of your papers that um, I think let's just table that for another time. Um, and, and in fact, I don't even think we're going to be able to cover your book, Superintelligence. I mean, maybe if we have a little time at the end, we'll touch it. But I should just want to say that you know, this book was incredibly influential on many of us in arguing the case for there being a potential existential risk with respect to the development of artificial intelligence and you know, artificial general intelligence in particular. And so it's, you know, this is something, the reason why I wouldn't cover this with you for the, the entirety of this conversation is I've had several conversations on my podcast that have been deeply informed by your view. I mean, I've, I've had Stuart Russell on, I've had Eliezer Yudkowsky on, and basically, every time I talk about AI, I consider what I say to be you know, fairly derivative of your book, and I often remind people of that. So 
my audience will be will be familiar with your views on AI, even if they're not familiar with you. So if we have time, we'll get back to that. But what I really want to talk about are a few of your papers. The first is the vulnerable world hypothesis. Uh, maybe I'll just name the papers here that I hope we'll cover. The vulnerable world. The second is, are you living in a computer simulation? And the third is, where are they? Which is your analysis of the, the Fermi problem asking where, where is the rest of the, the intelligent life in the galaxy. Let's start with the vulnerable world hypothesis. What do you mean by that phrase? Well, the hypothesis is, roughly speaking, that there is some level of technological development at which the world gets destroyed by default, as it were. So then what does it mean to get destroyed by default? I define something I call the semi-anarchic default condition, which is a condition in which there are a wide range of different actors with a wide range of different human recognizable motives. But then, more importantly, two conditions hold. One is that there is no very reliable way of resolving global coordination problems. And the other is that we don't have a very extremely reliable way of preventing individuals from committing actions that are extremely strongly disapproved of by a great majority of other people. Maybe it's better to come at it through a, a metaphor. Yeah, the urn. The urn mm-hmm. metaphor. So yeah. you can kind of and I've, I've, you can kind of think of the history of technological discovery as the process of pulling balls out of a giant urn, the urn of creativity. And we reach in and we get an idea out. And then we reach in and get another out. And we've extracted throughout history a great many of these balls. And the net effect of this has been hugely beneficial, I would say. This is why we now uh, sit in our air-conditioned offices and struggle not to eat too much rather than to try to get enough to eat in large parts of the world. But what if in this ball, in in this urn, there is a, a black ball in there somewhere? Like some, is there some possible technology that could be such that whichever civilization uh, discovers it invariably gets destroyed. Just to add a little color here, Nick, so so in, in your paper, you refer to this as the urn of inventions. And we have been, as you say, pulling balls out as quickly as we can get our hands on them. And on some level, the scientific ethos is really just a matter of pulling balls out as fast as you can and making sure that everybody knows about them. We want that we have this norm of transparency in science. And we have pulled out thus far only white or gray balls. And the white balls are the ones, the technologies or the memes or the norms or the social institutions that just have good consequences. And the gray ones are norms and memes and institutions and in most cases, technology that has mixed results or that can be used for good or for ill. And, and, you know, nuclear energy is is a classic case where we can power our cities with it, but we also produce fantastic amounts of pollution that's difficult to deal with. And in the in the worst case, we build weapons. So I just want to give a little more context to this this analogy. Yeah, and I guess most technologies are in, in some sense double-edged, but maybe the positive predominate. I think there might be some technologies that are mainly negative if you think of, I don't know, nerve gases or other yeah. tools. But, but what we haven't so far done is extract a black ball, right? One that is so harmful that it destroys the civilization that discovers it. 
And um, what if there is such a black ball in the urn, though? I mean, we can ask about how likely that is to be the case. We can also look at what, what is our current strategy with respect to this possibility. And it seems to me that currently our strategy with respect to the possibility that the urn might contain a black ball is, is simply to hope that it doesn't. So we keep extracting balls as fast as we can. We have become quite good at that, but we have no ability to put balls back into the urn. We, we cannot uninvent our inventions. So the first part of this paper tries to identify what are the types of ways in which the world could be vulnerable, the types of ways in which there could be some possible black ball technology that we might invent. And the first and most obvious type of way the world could be vulnerable is if there is some technology that greatly empowers individuals to cause sufficiently large quantities of destruction. Motivate this with a, or illustrate it by means of a historical counterfactual. We, in the last century, discovered how to split the atom and release the energy that is contained within some of the energy that's contained within the, the nucleus. And it turned out that, uh, that this is quite difficult to do. You need special materials. You need plutonium or highly enriched uranium. So really only states can do this kind of stuff to produce nuclear weapons. But what if it had turned out that there had been an easier way to release the energy of the atom? What if you could have made a nuclear bomb by you know, baking sand in the microwave oven or something like that? So, so that, then that might well have been the end of, of, of human civilization in that you, you, it, it's hard to see how you could have cities, let us say, if, if anybody who wanted to could destroy millions of people. So, so maybe we were just lucky. Now, now we know, of course, that it is physically impossible to create uh, an atomic detonation by baking sand in the microwave oven. But before you actually did the relevant nuclear physics, how, how could you possibly have known how it would turn out? Well, let's just spell out that because I, you know, I, I want to conserve everyone's intuitions as we go on this harrowing ride to, uh, to your terminus here because the punchline of this paper is fairly startling when you get to what the, the, the remedies are. So why is it that civilization could not endure the prospect of what you call easy nukes. If it were that easy to create a, a Hiroshima-level blast or beyond, why is it just a, a foregone conclusion that that would mean the end of cities and perhaps the end of most things we recognize? I think foregone conclusion is maybe a little too strong. It depends a little bit on the exact parameters we plug in. I mean, the intuition is that in, in a large enough population of people, like amongst every population with millions of people, there will always be a few people who, for whatever reason, would like to kill a million people or more if they could, whether they are just crazy or, or evil, or they have some weird ideological doctrine, or they're trying to extort other people or threaten other people that just, just humans are very diverse. And in a large enough set of people that will, for, for practically any desire you, you can specify, there will be somebody in there that has that. So if each of those destructively inclined people would be able to cause a sufficient amount of destruction, then everything would get destroyed. Yeah. Now, if one, if one imagines this actually playing out in history, then to, to, to tell whether all of civilization really would get destroyed or some horrible catastrophe short of that would happen instead would depend on various things like just 
what kind of nuclear weapon would would it be like a, a, a small kind of Hiroshima type of thing or a thermonuclear bomb? How easy would it be? Could literally anybody do it like in five minutes or would it take some engineer working for half a year? And so depending on exactly the what what values you pick for those and some other variables, right. you, you might get like scenarios ranging from from very bad to kind of existential catastrophe. But the, the, the point is just to illustrate that there, there historically have been these technological transitions where we have been lucky in that exactly. the destructive capability we discovered were hard to to wield. It, you know, and a, maybe a plausible way in which this kind of uh, very highly destructive capability could become easy to wield in the future would be through developments in biotechnology that maybe makes it easy to create designer viruses and so forth right. that doesn't don't require high amounts of energy or special difficult materials and so forth. And, and there you might have an even stronger case. Like, so with a nuclear weapon, like one nuclear weapon can only destroy one city, right? Uh, where the viruses and stuff potentially can spread. So Yeah, I mean, and we should remind people that we're we're in an environment now where people talk with some degree of flippancy about the prospect of every household one day having something like a desktop printer that can print DNA sequences, right? That everyone becomes their own bespoke molecular biologist and you you can just print your own medicine at home or your, your own gen, genetic intervention at home. And this stuff really is, you know, the recipe in the, under those conditions, the recipe to weaponize the, the 1918 flu could just be sent to you like a PDF. It's not without, beyond the bounds of plausible sci-fi that we could be in a condition where it really would be within the power of one nihilistic or you know otherwise ideological person to destroy the lives of millions and even billions in the wrong case. Yeah, or send us a PDF where you could just download it from the internet. So exactly. the, the, yeah. the full genomes of the number of highly virulent organisms are in the public domain and uh, just ready to download. So yeah, so I mean, we, we could talk more about that. I, I think that I would rather see a future where DNA synthesis was a service provided by a few places in the world where you would be able, if, if, if the need arose, to exert some control, some screening, yeah. rather than something that every lab needs to have its own separate little machine. Yeah, so that's, that, these, these are examples of type one vulnerability, like where the problem really arises from individuals becoming too empowered in their ability to create massive amounts of harm. Now, so there are other ways in which the world could be vulnerable that are slightly more subtle, but I think also worth bearing in mind. So uh, these have to do more about the way that technological developments could change the incentives that different actors face. We, we can again return to the nuclear history case for an illustration of this. And, and actually, this is maybe the closest to a black ball we've gotten so far with thermonuclear weapons and the big arms race during the Cold War led to something like 70,000 warheads being on hair trigger alert. So it looks loud, like with, with, when we can see some of the archives of this history that have recently opened up, that there were a number of close calls. The world actually came quite close to the brink on, on several occasions. And, and we might have been quite lucky to get through. It might not have been that we were in such a stable situation. Uh, it, it rather might have been that this was a kind of 
slightly black ballish technology and we just had enough luck to get through. But you could imagine it could have been worse. You could imagine properties of this technology that would have created stronger incentives, say, for a first strike, so that you would have crisis instability. If it had been easier, let us say, in a first strike to take out all the adversaries' nuclear weapons, then it might not have taken a lot uh, in, in a crisis situation to just have enough fear that you would have to strike first for fear that the adversary otherwise would do the same to you. Yeah, remind people that in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the people who were closest to the action felt that the odds of an exchange had been something like a coin toss, and something like 30 to 50%. And what you're envisioning is a situation where what you describe as safe first strike, which is, you know, there's just no reasonable fear that you're not going to be able to annihilate your enemy, provided you strike first, that would be a, a far less stable situation. And it's also, it's, it's also forgotten that the status quo of mutually assured destruction was actually a step toward stability. I mean, there was before the Russians had, or the Soviets had their own arsenals, there was a greater you know, game theoretic concern that we would be more tempted to use ours if you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.